Dr. McNerney, and I am here with a really, really special edition of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds Podcast. This is the very first Anesthesia Nerds Podcast that we are doing that is international, and we are joined today by Colin McDermott, who is a VMD, but also a certified aquatics veterinarian through the World Aquatic Veterinary Association. Colin is from the United States, but currently working as a veterinarian in Hong Kong, and I wanted to take the opportunity to not only talk to him about some anesthesia and pain management issues being uh, out there with birds, reptiles, aquatics, etc., uh, but also kind of the unique situation he's in being someone who is outside of the United States and watching what's going on in the veterinary world during this crazy uh, world pandemic that we have going on. So thanks so much for being here, Colin. That's great. Thanks for having me. Colin, like I've told people, you used to work in the United States, uh, but you decided mm-hmm. to make the jump, and now you're currently working in Hong Kong. Um, so describe, yeah. you know, your job, what your clinic is like, what you're doing each day, and how is it different than the United States? So we, my wife and I, my wife's a veterinarian too, I should probably preface with that. Um, <laughs> we got a job offer probably about a, over a year ago now to work with an old friend out here, Dr. Nicole Wire, who is also an exotics vet, um, and she's boarded in avian and small mammal now and works in an exotics clinic over, clinic over here in Hong Kong. And they were looking to expand and like all good plans and things that come up, uh, we were joking about moving. Then we joked a little bit more and that joke turned into a, a real offer. So we kind of packed everything up, moved our lives over to Hong Kong. And it's been an interesting time ever since. We got here in August, um, one week after the airport was shut down from the protests, um, wow. which was a lot of fun. But it's been the protests have been pretty calm for us. It hasn't been a major impact. And on the, the news, I'm sure you've seen a lot of it with the rioting and yeah. you know, things on fire in the streets and police marching through. Um, it, it's been a big issue in here in Hong Kong. Um, but for our day-to-day lives and for our clinic, it really hasn't been that big of haven't had that major of an impact. We've had to change plans multiple times to go different places, but um, that hasn't been too bad. Um, And then starting in December, so the very end of December, we started hearing kind of rumblings about this respiratory disease that was going through uh, Wuhan, China. Um, And for those that don't know, Hong Kong is uh, considered a special administrative region of China. Um, So it's in some ways you hear like, you know, it's two separate countries in some ways, but it's also basically under China. Um, so okay. there's a lot of people that cross the border every day to go to work, to come back from China, to go to China for work. And understandably, there was a lot of kind of anxiety uh, for that yeah. uh, when we started hearing about that disease starting up. Um, and then by about January, we had our first case here at the end of January in Hong Kong. And luckily, um, due to, I think, some some quick responses, there's, you know, you can debate how countries have responded uh, and when they've started and how they've done, but they kept the numbers pretty low. For a while, we were at about 200 cases after that first kind of surge in February. And it's been pretty steady um, and been pretty stable until this past week or so when things have really started ramping up again, Um, having, you know, 30, 40 cases a day showing up, mostly from people returning from other countries and coming back to Hong Kong. 
I'm interested to hear how has it impacted the veterinary clinic? Uh, because here in the United States, we are starting to really be aware of conserving our personal protective equipment. Um, some of hospitals mm-hmm. have sent personal protective equipment to human hospitals. They have stopped doing elective procedures. They do curbside check-ins and telemedicine to not allow owners into the clinic just to reduce the spread of you know person contact. Uh, how has it changed the way you guys are practicing medicine? All in all, not too much, surprisingly. So I uh, can preface that by saying we're in a bit of a special kind of clinic arrangement. The best way I can kind of describe our clinic is we're a um, almost like an internal medicine service for exotics uh, patients. Um, so we have probably about six to eight patients a day that are usually more second opinions or really more involved cases. We have changed a little bit what we're doing because we don't have a lot of community spread here. We are still seeing cases at a pretty good clip. We haven't had too many cancellations or any changes because of the virus, but we do have um, a lot of the, we have, you know, a lot of the hand sanitizer out in the waiting room. We have, you know, asking people to wear masks. The majority of people here are actually wearing masks of some sort, whether they be surgical masks or cloth masks. Um, even just in general, the public on the street. And I think that's a major, huge difference with Hong Kong compared to other countries, for sure. That stems from the SARS outbreak um, that happened in the early 2000s. You know, even before the outbreak with the coronavirus, there were a good portion of the population that just wears masks on a daily basis anymore. So I think the one thing that has been a game changer here, in addition to some of the things that the government has put in to kind of change how people are moving and, you know, with the borders, is that the actual kind of community of Hong Kong has lived through a respiratory outbreak and is very sensitive to it. And we're very proactive on a community level to try and, you know, social distance or have masks that we're reducing the spread. There's a lot of debate about what the masks are actually doing for the the general public, you know, especially when you're talking about a shortage of masks. I don't necessarily advocate for that for everybody, but I will say since we've started wearing masks more in the past, probably a week or two since we've had more of an outbreak recently, um, and you get shunned if you don't wear a mask here, I have realized just how much I'm touching my face um, with a mask (laughs) on at all times. You know, in surgery, you're sterile, you're not touching your face, but um, I think you know, one interesting thing that I've thought about is, you know, with all these people that are asymptomatic spreaders, is it possible that having a mask on may be at least reducing some level of that virus getting around or just reducing the amount that you're touching your face and potentially exposing yourself more? Yeah, that's a good point. And so I see that I know that cloth masks have kind of taken off a little bit at some veterinary practices. And, and while it's debatable for the actual protection, um, I think it is something to consider in terms of just being mindful and, and protecting yourself a little bit from, from touching your face. Yeah, definitely. As far as in your clinic, have you guys noticed any shortages in supplies or shortages in specifically drugs, um, anesthesia or pain management drugs that have come with this? Not for us. No. And again, we're kind of a specialty case, like a special case with our clinic. You know, being exotics, we're using um, a lot smaller doses on things. So things last a lot longer for us. With the heads up that we've had being, you know, a little bit earlier in the time scale of things, I think we definitely stocked up on some things, some PPE and things for the clinic to a reasonable extent so that we're at least secure in where we are. 
Um, I know that other clinics, general GP clinics, have had some issues um, in terms of supplying PPE, deciding whether you know masks are mandatory for staff members. And this all gets into kind of the planning in terms of what your response is to the coronavirus. Yeah, I think that's probably, it hasn't affected us too much, but I'll be very interested to see what happens in the next couple of weeks. So do you have any advice for us United States veterinary clinic members and just, you know, how we can uh, brace ourselves to get through this the next couple of weeks, et cetera? Um, I think the, some of the important things to remember are, you know, and this is part of what I wrote in that article, is to take some time and actually breathe a little bit. I found myself even last week, even though my situation here isn't bad in the grand scheme of things, especially with what I talked to a lot of my friends going through in um, the U.S. It is was very daunting to listen uh, to everybody, um, to know like my mom is in New Jersey, my brother's in Delaware, my little brother's in North Carolina, and they're all experiencing kind of the effects of not being able to find things in the grocery store, or not finding, you know, the toilet paper, which um, is kind of crazy. But, <laughs> you know, my little brother was having trouble finding fresh food in his supermarket. He's got two kids. You know, it, it's something that even though it's not too bad for us right now here where we are, just to know that it's bad for everyone else and the people that I care about and know about, they, they kind of laid the anxiety on a little bit. So I was found myself checking the news constantly and jumping on social media um, and kind of fell down that hole for a couple of days. So taking that step back, breathing, you know, just kind of, even if you, you know, you can call it meditation, you can go into um, those kinds of modes where you're just distancing yourself a little bit, even taking a few minutes to stop and realize, you know, what am I actually doing with all of this? Mm -hmm. And then the next step is to really recognize where you are. You know, this is certainly a, a daunting problem. It's a massive problem that's going to have very long lasting effects, most likely, both for um, just countries, politics and economics, but also on our profession. So trying to anticipate and trying to understand what those challenges are going to be, what, what we have to recognize and accept about what's happening, um, but not letting yourself get too bogged down with it. Don't you know, get yourself so caught up that you're putting yourself into panic attacks, but just know what the problems are and be ready to, to face them. And then really taking that um, and trying to figure out with what is uncertain in our situation, um, trying to clarify what you can in the situation. You know, there's a lot of things that we don't have control over at this point, but there are things that we do. You know, you can decide to eat healthy. You can decide how your schedule is going to be, whether you're at work or you're at home, um, deciding to put some structure to your day to really take control of the things that you can take control of with so much uncertainty outside of you, outside of your situation. Um, that can really kind of ground you a little bit. And then those uncertain problems become more, you know, they're easier to tackle and you can take care of them a little bit easier. With that, establishing a routine is really key. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to be sitting there and, you know, you don't have to decide minute by minute. I kind of hate that kind of scheduling. I've always been, you know, against that. But doing what's called like block scheduling or determining, you know, today I'm going to watch 30 minutes of Netflix or I'll be on social media for 15 minutes, whatever it's going to be. Set yourself that timer and then walk away from it when you're done. Don't get caught up in this hole you know, where you're going to be stuck 
looking up things for two hours. Uh, all of a sudden, two, three hours have passed, and you've lost most of your day. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, most of your day that Tiger King is really addictive. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard know, to I walk away from that. <laughs> it's probably something I should watch with the exotic stuff. I've heard a lot of... Uh, you know what? It's probably things. something you should not watch as yeah, an that's exotics person. <laughs> And then, you know, two other kind of big things are, you know, in that routine and in that kind of clarifying and controlling your, um, your situation, take the time to recharge. Um, This is something I'm really bad at. It's something that I really focus on. You know, when I get focused on work, I tend to focus on work for a long time and, you know, stay up late. There's many times my wife has, uh, been quite upset with me falling asleep on the couch when I say I'm just going to do about 20 minutes of work. I end up working for two hours and passing out, you know, outside in the living room in our 400 square foot apartment. It's not that <laughs> not that many places to fall asleep, but one room over. And I realize when I do that, you know, I'm not as productive. I'm not able to get up and tackle the day as easily. You know, I'm distracted for most of the day after I kind of drive myself too hard. So it could be something as simple as, you know, reading for 10, 15 minutes before going to sleep, whatever you need to do to recharge, step away from work, take that time, either to walk outside or control that part of your life. You'll find that you're, whether, you know, consciously or subconsciously, you're going to be more productive. And there's studies out there to show that when you take that time, you're much more productive at work. And then probably the most important thing, and this can be a little bit of a double-edged sword, depending on who you're talking to, um, but you really want to stay connected, you know, in a time where social distancing is so important, you know, especially for the U.S. right now, being physically distant doesn't mean that you have to be mentally or emotionally distant. You know, you can stay connected with people. There's so many opportunities to stay connected now that we almost take it for granted, Um, but trying to get on the phone with somebody, get on a voice call, just continually, you know, I'm continually texting my family and saying, you know, how are you guys doing? You know, what's going on? This is what we're doing here. But staying connected in a good way, not so much to bring yourself down with a lot of the doom and gloom with people, but you want to kind of acknowledge that too. But really just making sure that we're keeping those connections um, and and staying kind of emotionally and mentally um, up on things and, you know, talking with others. It's, it's so important. And I I like what you said that, you know, just because we're after being physically distant doesn't mean we have to be emotionally distant. And as you know, uh, I am definitely an extrovert. That's my personality. Um, It's been really hard on me to not have like big group dinners or not have the veterinary conferences. I usually really enjoy going to. So uh, I do understand it's for the greater good and I am, I'm doing it, but, uh, but it is definitely, it takes a toll on you mentally. You know, one of the things with this virus that it's probably so frustrating to watch um, in the U.S. Um, and other countries is that, you know, what what we do today for this virus determines what happens in two weeks with this virus. So it's something that, you know, although it's not in some areas, it's not so bad now, um, you know, what happens tomorrow with infections or you know, death rate, you know, kind of have already been to some level decided by our actions a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is so important. We're talking about in Hong Kong right now, we're getting, you know, we had maybe one or two cases a day for the past month. The past week, we've jumped up to about 30 to 45 cases a day. Some community spread, some people coming back. So, you know, now is the time where we're starting to get a lot of 
restrictions again. Uh, they were talking about stopping the sale of alcohol at bars and restaurants, which has a, a lot of people upset. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it is something that, you know, is that what needs to happen? Does there need to be some sort of enforced social distancing? And I go back and forth on that part. But I think if you are looking at it in terms of what do we need to do now to make sure in two weeks we're not in a really dire situation, I think there's something to be said for it. I agree with everything you're saying. I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, and since this is the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, um, of course. I do want to uh, spend our last couple of minutes talking about anesthesia and pain management. And because you are exotics doctor, and that's kind of your jam, um, I was going to throw a case at you because we try to do case studies here and be like, give you a case and how you would handle it. So the case I'm going to give you is, let's say you have a leopard gecko come in. I'm just using a leopard gecko because I feel like I'm not involved in a lot of exotics, but I do feel like a leopard gecko is a pretty popular pet amongst a lot of people, uh, especially here in the United States. So let's say you have a leopard gecko come into you. It's experienced some kind of trauma, and now it needs to have its leg amputated. Can you walk through kind of how you would approach that problem, uh, anesthesia and pain management-wise? What are some things you should look out for? Just some general kind of leopard gecko tips to make sure we are keeping these guys comfortable. Yeah. And, you know, reptiles are probably one of my favorite things to deal with. I know they're not, (laughs) definitely not everyone's favorite, but, you know, I've kept reptiles forever. They're kind of what I'm gearing towards my ABVP reptile. So um, reptiles are kind of my jam. One thing, um, if I can kind of give some advice on, you know, any reptile you're seeing, whether it be, um, you know, leopard gecko, snake, turtle, um, the most important thing to remember about them is that they are ectothermic. Um, so they need a, a appropriate temperature in their environment to be able to process things properly, to actually process the drugs that you're giving them. Um, so, you know, everybody I think has probably heard the, in some cases, urban legend, in some cases, it's actually happened to some people where, you know, you hear about the vet trying to euthanize a tortoise or a turtle. They give them the drugs, they think they're out, they put them in the freezer or the fridge, they come back the next day and that turtle's walking around in the freezer or fridge and <laughs> hasn't died. Uh, because it hasn't processed the drugs, uh, most likely, of what, what was given to them. So very, very key before you do anything and with these animals um, or give them any medications or even sometimes you know, do a full thorough examination, you want to warm them up probably for about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, leopard geckos, usually about 80 to 85 degrees is pretty good for a general warm up for them. Okay. Um, at home, they're going to need different temperatures, but in a hospital setting, that works pretty well. And then once you've got them at the appropriate temperature, kind of evaluating where they're at, getting a full exam. And let's say this one has um, some severe kind of trauma or a uh, one thing that happens a lot to these guys is leg band constriction from shedding improperly. Hmm. Um, so if that leg is, you know, devitalized or is there something we're going to have to take into surgery, um, there's actually a few different drugs that I like for them. I will say that there are very few studies um, out there for most of our reptiles patients. You know, there are some studies out there specifically in leopard geckos, but in many cases we have to extrapolate what's been done in other species to, you know, certain species of lizards or snakes or turtles. So I'm a big fan, um, and I know this is probably going to drive you crazy, but I'm a big (laughs) fan in any animal that isn't a cat or a dog, midazolam. Um, Oh, okay. All right. As yeah. long as you didn't say, like, put them in a box and gas them down. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
no, you'll be there for hours. Um, <laughs> so midazolam tends to work really well in a lot of patients or a lot of exotics patients. Um, we do not, we very, very rarely would see um, any paradoxical reactions or anything that where we get that kind of hyperexcitement. So midazolam can be really good in terms of a general kind of uh, pre-medication for a lot of these guys just to calm them down. One thing to remember about leopard geckos is if you're trying to get anything like a blood sample or you know evaluating them for pre-anesthetic blood work, getting blood from the tail is usually a great way to go, but they can lose their tails very quickly. So even for a general blood draw, I like to give them a little sedation, um, either with bedazolam or alfaxolam. Okay. Alfaxolin has been a really great drug for a lot of our exotics as well, especially the reptiles. For these little guys, if you can't get IV access right away, you can give it IM, you can give it sub-Q, we're finding. I mean, it's working pretty well. For pain control in these guys, it is a bit questionable what actually works in terms of nociception versus you know, it versus the analgesia or, you know, exactly what um, they're processing it to. But I tend to see a good response with the opioid drugs, especially things like morphine or um, hydromorphone in these guys. Okay. I like a lot giving that and then waiting about two hours, giving a dose, usually about 0.5 mg per kg to one mg per kg and letting them sit in that warm environment for one to two hours to let it really process. And then moving forward with an induction with alone or induction with, you know, dexmedetomidine, midazolam. There's a couple of combinations out there, depending on what you're working with, the size of the animal, how comfortable you are with the drugs. Okay. Now, uh, when you say induction, I mean, are you placing IV catheters in these patients? Or are these kind of an not, not IM induction? Not so much in these guys. Um, okay. These guys can be an IM induction. They can be kind of a straight needle um, induction with the alfaxalone IV. Okay depending on what you're comfortable with, how big the animal is. So for things like iguanas, we can place catheters in the tail during surgery, even bearded dragons, using a butterfly into the tail vein and securing it uh, with tape for the procedure, giving them IV fluids, maintaining them that way. Generally, I will find when you're doing either an IM induction dose or you're doing a heavy sedative dose, either the midazolam or alfaxalone, you generally can get these guys to a point where you can actually intubate them. Okay. When you have them quiet enough and you have them ready for surgery, intubation in them is really straightforward. They don't have an epiglottis, so they just have the glottis that opens up at the base of their tongue. I like a 18 or 16 gauge catheter, IV catheter. Remove the stylet and take the end of a either a 2.0 or a 2.5 endotracheal tube. Pop the plastic connector piece off, put it onto the IV catheter tape it in place. Um, and then you have a really good uh, way to secure their airway and actually breathe for them during the procedure. Okay. I mean, that's a great way to keep them under for, with ISO or SIBO for the forever, however long your procedure is going <laughs> to be. So for uh, things like a limb amputation in them, it's not too long, but if you're doing something like um, an ovariectomy or a solomic exploratory surgery, you might want to intubate them, secure them, make sure you have the time to do what you need to do. How long do you keep them on pain meds? You know, like if a dog was going to get a limb amputated, that's, you know, we're talking about weeks of analgesics post-operatively. You know, what do you do for like a leopard gecko that needed a limb amputated post-op pain management wise? 
I tend to keep them um, at least for a couple of weeks on the pain management. Okay. Now, reptiles are really tricky because they tend to be very stoic animals. But just because they are, you know, very stoic and don't show signs of pain doesn't mean that they don't experience pain. Probably one of the more promising pain medications or long-term pain medications for them. I use a lot of tramadol in them. Okay. Um, even as a sole agent from some of the studies that we have, it seems to show the most promise in terms of testing, you know, thermal response to them or uh, limb withdrawal um, and those kinds of tests, which are, aren't perfect, uh, but at least it's some type of information to let us know how they're doing. Tramadol once a day and then five to 10 mg per kg, depending on the animal, the species. And there's some studies out there in turtles um, where 10 mg per kg once a day seems to work pretty decently. If they're in the hospital for the first couple of days after the procedure, doing injections of hydromorphone daily is sometimes a better bet. It's a little bit, um, sometimes can have a little bit of a sedative effect, so they're not running around and banging into things and opening up their incisions. Those are probably the two main things I rely on. Things like NSAIDs are a bit questionable in their efficacy. Um, I certainly will keep them on it for short periods. Of course, if they're nice and hydrated, if their temperatures are right, those kinds of things. Reptiles are very prone to chronic dehydration with how they're kept. So we want to make sure that they're adequately hydrated, either by repeating sub-Q fluids or um, ensuring proper temperatures and you know, oral fluids after the procedures as well. So there are options out there, you know, for reptiles, right? Yeah. Sounds like you can even get kind of multimodal with stuff. Do you use local blocks ever on these guys? Yes, that is um, huge in them. You know, we, again, don't have a lot of studies on it. Again, kind of a, a difficult thing to truly prove in them. But I mm -hmm. do find that local blocks, lidocaine, bupivacaine, at, you know, similar doses to um, what you're using in mammals work really nicely. There actually are also studies out there, and one that's not a leopard gecko, but for things like red-eared sliders or turtles where you're going in and doing one of the best kind of emergency type things for them is when they have their phallus hanging out and it needs to be amputated. Um, or God. too traumatized, you can actually give them a intrathecal, um, essentially not quite an epidural, but you can do local anesthesia into that area. So along the top of the tail into the extradural space and actually induce regional anesthesia to the point where the front of the animal will be fully awake and, and fine, just like, you know, cats with mm -hmm. epidurals for block cats. But everything kind of relaxes. You can actually go in and remove that tissue pretty quickly without having to put the animal under full anesthesia. Of course, we want to give pain medications and things before right. and after. Um, but it is a great way to mobilize that area to do shorter procedures like that. And I do it in a lot of my spays for turtles as well. Wow, we've got a lot of information here, Colin. And thank you, you so go. much for being my first international guest on the podcast. We hope to hear more from you because, uh, again, as everybody knows, I have very little experience when it comes to anesthesia of exotics, uh, but I'm very fascinated by it. So hopefully we can have you back on the podcast again and we can talk more about some like turtles or iguanas or um, I actually just watched a documentary on uh, pangolins, which are fascinating, oh, yeah. by the way. So, um, you know, maybe we could like do a deep dive into pangolin medicine someday. <laughs> No problem. This was awesome. All right. Hopefully Thanks helpful. so much, Colin. Thanks. 
Thanks so much to Colin for joining us all the way from Hong Kong. If you guys enjoyed listening to Colin and you want to hear more from him, he is writing a pretty amazing article for the Dr. Andy Work website, and I will link to that in the show notes. Also, if you are enjoying this podcast and you want to help make the podcast continue and keep going and we can bring you some pretty amazing content and some guests, uh, please consider going on to Patreon and looking up veterinary anesthesia nerds and help keep us going. We hope you all are staying safe and washing your hands. Yes.